clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Good afternoon, welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller Special Client Event. Today's event is the 25th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and President of the Ford Foundation, Darren Walker. With that, please allow me to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you very much, Tom, and good afternoon to clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our colleagues at Rockefeller, and other friends of Rockefeller. And welcome to our 25th, as Tom said, in the series, the client series that we started at the beginning of this pandemic way back over a year ago now. It's my great pleasure to have with us today, Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation. Darren uh, is, uh, is president of this Ford Foundation, one of the largest philanthropies in the world with 14 billion in assets. Uh, and uh, he describes it as an international social justice philanthropy. Under his leadership, the Ford Foundation became the first nonprofit in US history to issue a billion dollar designated social bond in US capital markets for proceeds to strengthen and stabilize nonprofit organizations in the wake of COVID-19. Before joining Ford, Darren was vice president at Rockefeller Foundation, a place near and dear to our hearts here, overseeing global and domestic programs. Darren's had a spectacular career and is involved in a wide swath of organizations and roles across business, government, and philanthropy. He co-chairs New York City's Mayoral Advisory Commission on city art, monuments, and markers and has served as the Independent Commission on New York City Criminal Justice and Incarceration Reform, as well as the UN International Labor Organization Global Commission on the Future of Work. He co-founded both the US Impact Investing Alliance and the President's Council on Disability Inclusion and Philanthropy. He serves on many boards, including Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, the National Gallery of Art, Carnegie Hall, the High Line, the Committee to Protect Journalists, and the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. In the summer of 2020, he was also appointed to the boards of Square and Ralph Lauren. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and is a recipient of 16 honorary degrees and university awards, including Harvard University's W.E.B. Du Bois Medal. His many commencement speeches are impactful for graduates and all who listen, including the University of Texas in 2015, where he talked about the importance of bridges, physical and human, at many critical points in his career. And we're gonna come back to that later on. Darren was uh, educated exclusively in public schools and a, mem a member of the first Head Start class in 1965. He received a Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Science, and a JD degree from the University of Texas at Austin. He's been included on numerous leadership lists. I'm gonna give you a few examples here as well. Time's annual 100 Most Influential People, Rolling Stone's 25 People Shaping the Future, Fast Company's Most Creative People in Business, Ebony's Power 100, Out Magazine's Power 50, and most recently, Darren was named Wall Street's the Wall Street Journal's 2020 philanthropy innovator. 
I told Darren I was going to spend more time on his bio because it sets up the many topics that he's had an impact on over the course of his career, the many areas where he's made a difference, which is one reason I'm so pleased that uh, he's with us here today. So Darren, good afternoon, and thank you very much for being with us at Rockefeller Capital Management today. Thank you, Greg. I'm really honored to be here. And of course, my friend David Rockefeller um, invited me and introduced me to you. And, and it's just a huge honor to be a part of this program, this series. Well, I know David Rockefeller is listening, uh, is excited you're on. Uh, and uh, we're grateful that he made the connection between uh, me and you and that we can do this here today. So Darren, there's so many topics, again, many coming just out of your biography that we can talk about, but I really would like to start uh, with the 60 Minutes interview, which I believe was just a few weeks ago. I know it was just a few weeks ago because I watched it. Uh, it was a great piece. Uh, can you share a little bit about how that came about, uh, how long it was in the works, and what was it like to have your story told in that forum, which is about as wide and public as anything uh, even somebody who's uh, seen as many things as you have, that was putting it right out there for everybody. What was that like? Well, I think the purpose of it was really twofold. Uh, one was to tell the story of um, the Ford Foundation, our history, uh, where we are today, and uh, what has happened since I've been president. And I think um, at some point the producer thought that uh, a dimension of my own personal story would uh, align well with the, the the larger idea, so that's what happened, and it was it was it was that, and uh, and I think I was happy uh, with the results uh, because we talked mostly about philanthropy, and we talked about my own story in this country, which uh, truly is a story that could only happen in this country, and I think that really came through both my gratitude for being born in this country and my knowledge that nowhere else in the world would my story be possible but America, but at the same time, my belief that America must do more and remain true to our highest ideals if stories like mine and people from my background um, aren't able to get on the mobility escalator to have opportunity that the prospects for our country are grim and dim. And so part of the story was really um, a, a call to action um, to ensure that this country remains um, the beacon and um, where people like me um, aren't unicorns and, 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 and are more um, that the experience of, of mobility in this country uh, continues as it has uh, over over many, many uh, generations. Uh, Darren, can, can we, uh, it is a, a, a great story. Can we, can we talk a little bit about, can you talk a little bit about your roots and the personal story here, you know, where you were brought up, a little bit about that, as well as those who influenced you the, the early years, I think, uh, it was out there in 60 Minutes, but I'd like to, to have you do a little bit of it here as well. Well, sure. I mean, I think um, I am very, very fortunate. Um, I am incredibly lucky. Um, I, my family, um, my, my mother is from a very uh, poor uh, small town in, in rural Louisiana. And fortunately, she took my sister and uh, me from that town. I was born in the Charity Hospital in Lafayette, Louisiana, and we moved to 
to Liberty County in East Texas. And uh, I uh, grew up in a small town called Ames, Texas, population 1010. And uh, in 1965, we lived on a dirt road and a little shotgun house. And a lady appeared to uh, tell my mother uh, on, on the front uh, porch about a new government program that President Johnson was instituting called Head Start. And so I was lucky enough to be signed up for the first class of Head Start in the summer of 1965. And then as you recounted, uh, Greg, I uh, attended private public schools. I never have attended a day of private school in my life. And I say that with great pride and as a reminder, because increasingly the spaces and places I occupy, uh, I am a unicorn. Uh, I say that because when, uh, whether it's at Davos or Sun Valley or Aspen or any of the places that the caravan of, of people um, travel to, to, to be uh, on panels and such, most of the bios don't look like mine. Uh, most of the bios of the people on speaking and keynoting and on panels are people who are increasingly educated uh, in, in parallel systems. I believe in a democracy, there's a risk. Uh, and ultimately, in a democracy, uh, the public must believe in public institutions, uh, public education, um, public goods, and the more uh, these goods are privatized, uh, the more uh, the way one can excel uh, and it be advanced is through private systems, through private education. I don't believe that that's good for democracy. So I've been very lucky um, all along through private, through, through public schools, through um, public university. I felt like my country was cheering me on. I felt like uh, I uh, America wanted me to succeed, and and I continue to feel that way. But what I worry about today is that young people, the the, the guy who's the auto worker, um, who is white and working class and worried about his children's future, does not feel that America is cheering him on. Um, the black or Latinx person living in a, uh, a public housing project in Queens doesn't feel like America is cheering uh, his children on. And that's what we should be concerned about today. Um, for our democracy to work, we need to be a hopeful people. Uh, hope is the oxygen of democracy. And when people are hopeless, uh, democracies atrophy. And if you ever want to see what uh, atrophied democracies look like, there are a lot of places in the world where the Ford Foundation works, and I can tell you what it looks like. And certainly my friend David Rockefeller knows this. The Rockefeller Foundation as well works in places, and we know what hopeless people um, look like. Uh, they uh, are uh, like more and more people in the United States, and that worries me greatly. Well, I know one of the things that you've said uh, in our multiple conversations is uh, that you remain a very hopeful person. So we're going to pursue all uh, a number of these themes. Uh, but before we go there, I want to you know finish your trajectory because it's an interesting path uh, in in 1987. So you you uh, got a bachelor's, a master's, and a juris doctor at Texas, and you were uh, began to work 
1987 at Cleary Gottlieb in New York, one of the world's top law firms where I had been a summer associate uh, that year that you began. Uh, so I was a summer associate in 87 and you started after you took the bar uh, in that fall. Um, but you didn't stay with that for long. You were a practicing lawyer at a spectacular firm, but you moved uh, from there to UBS and to Wall Street. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, shift? And then I've got one more shift to ask you about. And then that from there, you went on to do everything you've done. But early on, you were, uh, you were at Cleary and then you went to UBS. So what were you thinking then? Well, I have to say, you know, when I... Um there was a time in law school when when a lot of people are making decisions about career path. For me, uh, I had a lot of friends who were going uh, to work in public interest law, to work at the ACLU or uh, some other public interest firm. For me, I was very clear. Uh, I was going to um, uh, work and hopefully make as much money as I could. One of the things about growing up poor is that you resolve as an adult to never be poor again. And maybe it's the trauma of growing up in a household where your mother is worried about paying the rent or whether her car is going to be repossessed again uh, or whether you've got enough food. Um, these are things that uh, leave an indelible mark on the psyche of young people, young children, as I was and it certainly did and so for me coming to new york and working on wall street was a critical path to that end it wasn't that i um had a special desire to be uh, an investment banker or a bond salesman or any of the things that i did um it was it was a good uh trajectory to have some semblance of financial security and so after 10 years i was able to do what I was really passionate about, which was to go to Harlem and work um, leading a nonprofit there and at the Abyssinian Baptist Church, which was just the chance of a lifetime to work for Calvin Butts and Karen Phillips to um, be in, in the 90s um, helping in the redevelopment of that community was a huge honor. Um, and, and I really enjoyed it. And I thought I would be doing that work until one day someone gave uh, my name, uh, the someone was the president of another foundation who, who worked with me at Abyssinian. She gave my name to the then president of the Rockefeller Foundation. And that's how I found myself a few weeks later in his office. And, uh, and the rest is history. That's a fantastic uh, story and transition. Uh, you know, there, are, there are not too many people, you know, when you went to Abyssinian and then you stayed with it, this passion for for philanthropy and for being in in that part of the uh, you know of the universe must have been something that you really did feel because you you were at UBS you had a successful career a lot of people keep going in that uh, or in related uh, career but you really made a, a, a significant shift and then you stayed with it uh, this was something that you felt uh, in, in a in a really deep way that you wanted to have a career in the philanthropic not-for-profit world. Is that fair? Well, it is. I mean, I was lucky to find a, an opportunity to have my vocation and my avocation in complete alignment, which is an enormous privilege. Uh, when I worked at UBS, um, I, I, if I'm to be honest, I wasn't passionate about collateralized mortgage obligation 
or securitizing credit card receivables. But I had an aptitude to do it. And, and it was something you were remunerated very well for doing. And, and so, uh, but when I got to Harlem, um, for the first time, I felt that my training, uh, my, my uh, skill, I understood um, transactions, I understood project finance. I just never done it for low-income housing. I'd never um, done it for a, a, a supermarket on 125th Street. Um, and so to take those skills and apply them to something I was really passionate about, which was community development and, and, and affordable housing and things like that, was just a, uh, an enormous, um, the, the, the sort of um, gratification that you get from that um, was something I hadn't experienced before. And so yeah, I, I feel really lucky, Greg, to have landed, of course, first at Rockefeller, which is the gold standard of, of all uh, foundations, and to have to have been a part of certainly the most well-known uh, name in philanthropy around the world was a huge privilege. And uh, to have that experience was just, uh, was like a dream, I mean, on, on some level. Um, and yeah, it was really, and, and, and to the last 20 plus years in philanthropy has been um, just a, a, a great experience. It's, a, it's an incredible trajectory, you know, Rockefeller and then Ford. I mean, these are the names um, uh, because but, of our- but Very different donors, you know. I mean, the reality is, you know, John D. Rockefeller was, you know, along with Andrew Carnegie, the original um, industrialist uh, philanthropist. Um, I am very proud of many things at the Ford Foundation, and I am enormously proud to lead uh, a foundation founded by Henry and Edsel Ford. But Henry Ford was not um, a philanthropist. Um, I mean, that was not where he started. Uh, his son actually uh, helped to convince him to start the foundation. But the Ford Foundation's history is very different. Um, and, and to be completely candid, um, the Ford Foundation was created as a way to uh, ensure that upon the death of Edsel Ford, which tragically occurred in 1943 uh, when he was just 49, that the family not have to pay taxes and uh, create a mechanism for the family to retain control of the Ford Motor Company. Um, and, and so the, 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 the transmission of, of most of Edsel Ford's privately held Ford Motor Company stock to the Ford Foundation made it possible because Edsel's son, Henry Ford II, would become chairman of the Ford Motor Company and the Ford Foundation, and the two largest shareholders of the soon-to-be-publicly-owned uh, company um, would be able to control the company. So uh, Rockefeller and Ford have different origins, uh, to say the least. Uh, Darren, I'm going to stay with that for a second, because as you know, uh, they're uh, our partners and uh, and we've got this uh, very special family name at Rockefeller Capital Management. 
and, and I know you know this, but uh, for our viewers and just to share since you opened the topic up, the, the family and the philanthropy over seven generations is nothing short of stunning. Having started Spelman College, the University of Chicago, the Museum of Modern Art, the Asia Society, national parks all over the place in this country, uh, a hospital in Beijing in 1919 that's still there today. Uh, you know, the, the, the instinct around philanthropy and giving back has been embedded in this family. And I'm saying this now that I know them, but also as an observer over those many decades, uh, makes it a, a, a unique family over American history. And, a, and part of the resonance in the name, and, and we, we say the brand here sometimes, but it is the family name, is because Americans respect it over so many generations, the Rockefeller family for everything that they've done uh, in part along these lines. So I like to say my father is 87, my kids are in their 20s, I'm in the middle. Uh, and all of those generations from the, the uh, greatest generation, my father, all the way through to uh, Gen Z, they hear Rockefeller and they say there's positive uh, reaction to that for the reasons you're describing. And, and it was, um, I mean, in so many ways, John D. Rockefeller uh, and especially John D. Rockefeller Jr. Uh, were truly radical. I mean, the idea that uh, John D. Rockefeller would support the creation of Spelman College, um, it was a radical idea that young black women should attend college. Uh, and and receive a bachelor's degree. I mean, that was a radical idea. Um, in, it was the 1880s, right? I mean, when they there. started, it was the 1880s. So I'm sure at that time, right, it was. It was a very radical idea. And I think the, the there was so much of what uh, around the world, not just in the United States, because there isn't a continent or a place you can go where the name Rockefeller does not resonate. And when, you know, when I'm in India with philanthropist there. I mean, of course, the Rockefeller model is the model. I mean, if you talk to Dangote in in, uh, in West Africa, um, he will tell you that um, the Rockefeller model is a model that many uh, of his peers, um, the emerging group of African billionaires who are starting foundations, um, are in many ways um, modeling their work on. You know, uh, Darren, let, let's pursue that a little bit. Uh, we can start to get to the, the things that you've been pushing at the at the Ford Foundation, but give the listeners a little sense of, as the president of the Ford Foundation, you know, we were talking about how you're about to get out and start traveling again, as are uh, a lot of us, uh, but the magnitude of the travel you did and the things that you see as you explore, you know, uh, topics and issues all over the, the this country and all over the world, so that you can put forward into the mix to, to make change, which is a big part of the way you think about it. Give the uh, people a sense of, um, uh, you know, as the president of the Ford Foundation, what are you doing on a regular basis? The amount of travel, the number of countries, the topics you take on, just give a sense of that. And then we'll talk about uh, some of the specific initiatives at Ford. Well, the, um, the foundation works today in 10 regions. Um, we, um, our endowment has 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 continued to do very well. Um, I mean, we are um, as of last week um, over sixteen and a half billion, and um, that means we'll give away seven to eight hundred million this year, plus uh, the 
500 million from um, from our social bonds, and we'll do that in the 10 regions where we have offices outside of the U.S. Um, and that work is in um, a number of programmatic areas, and those areas include women and girls development, um, technology and society, uh, the future of workers. Uh, I work in arts and culture, um, the um, um, international relations and and and. Uh, and, and international diplomacy. Um, and, and the final area is our work on um, expanding um, the, and strengthening civil society. And so those are the areas we work in and we have grant making in, in 10 regions in, um, in, in offices in Mexico City, Bogota, Rio, um, and then starting on the African continent in Cairo, Lagos, Nairobi, Johannesburg, uh, Delhi, Jakarta, and Beijing. Um, so those are our offices, and we have about 500 uh, staff working in, in all of those countries making grants and, and really working to empower local people and, and their priorities and centering them in, in our work. And as the leader, you're out in those offices and you're out in the field on a regular basis, traveling and, and meeting with your team and exploring ways that you can put the foundation, the foundation's assets to work to make uh, make change. In, in partnership. I mean, at the end of the day, the Ford Foundation's mission will not be achieved without partnership. And it's why we work with um, philanthropists in those countries, um, why we partner with government wherever we can. Um, to, to really create the kind of public-private models, because ultimately that's the way we're going to see change. So a, a huge amount of my time is the sort of shoe leather of organizing of, of I say that I spend as much time um, fundraising um, from others than, than I do actually giving away the Ford Foundation's uh, money. Most of that is done through, you know, the vice presidents. Um, but I spend a lot of time um, as I as I needed to do on the social bond, or as I've needed to do on our um, ending mass incarceration in America, um, where where we've levered and really brought in far more money than we actually uh, invest ourselves. But that's all because of the, the partnership work. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about uh, two areas in particular that uh, I know. Uh, are high on the list of things that, that you've really had an impact on there and, and in conjunction with your partners. One is mass incarceration and the other is impact investing, which we're also uh, quite focused on here for maybe the same, you know, some of the same reasons you were originally a Rockefeller. The Rockefeller family were pioneers in impact investing. And I think you were, uh, uh, you, you might have still been there, but it was crossover time when that phrase impact investing actually came out of the, the Rockefeller Foundation. But could you talk about those two focus areas for the uh, Ford uh, Foundation, mass incarceration and, uh, and and impact investing? Well, certainly the the work around mass incarceration is longstanding work before um, this idea and the understanding that is pretty common today of our system of mass incarceration became well known. Um, and so we were funding. One of the things I like to say at Ford is that we invest in the three I's: ideas. Uh, institutions and individuals. And those ideas can at the time of our early investment be really marginal or not well known. So for example, we we invested in an unknown um, 
young economist um, in Bangladesh um, named Mohammed Yunus um, in the 1970s who had an idea and we invested um, in some research that led then to the creation of um, the institution, which was the Grameen Bank. And, um, and over time, we invest in those three eyes. We, in the area of mass incarceration, invested early um, in organizations like um, Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative, Michelle Alexander, who wrote the book, The New Jim Crow, which really popularized uh, the notion of mass incarceration. Um, lots of research uh, on the different inputs to our system, the history of the war on drugs, um, which was really um, an insidious uh, effort uh, of, of creation by um, Richard Nixon and some of his uh, leadership uh, to really do harm. I mean, again, uh, this isn't a this isn't conjecture. This is well documented uh, to do harm to to the enemies of of the Nixon administration, who at that time, at least in the creation of the, the drug, um, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, um, was to was to get back at, at quote unquote Negroes and hippies, which was what they said uh, they wanted to do through this war on drugs. Um, that war on, on drugs then morphed over time and with, with both the Clinton administration doing more harm and others um, that led to the over-incarceration that we have, and it is particularly of um, African-Americans, um, Latinx, and poor whites uh, have all uh, suffered because of this misguided uh, um, mass incarceration system that has gotten for us what it was designed to get. So we have achieved the objectives, um, and the objectives were to um, were to were to incarcerate uh, more uh, people of color and more poor people, um, and so we are supporting organizations working to reform that system. Um, and whether that is ending cash bail for low-level offenders uh, or addressing issues of um, lifetime uh, sentences for youth, um, etc., we were very lucky because. Um, we found uh, in a, a major partner and a dear friend, um, a woman called Agnes Gund, who upon seeing Ava DuVernay's uh, film, 13th, uh, made the decision to sell uh, one of her masterpieces. Um, and David um, uh, knows this very well because he's had dinner under that masterpiece in Aggie's apartment on many occasions, a great um, uh, masterpiece from um, by the artist uh, uh, Roy Lichtenstein, which she sold for $165 million and took $100 million and uh, has put it in a fund with the Ford Foundation to uh, work to uh, address mass incarceration. The impact investing work, uh, absolutely, the Rockefeller Foundation um, was ground zero of that. I was um, one of the organizers of that historic uh, Bellagio conference uh, where the term impact investing was first coined and where so many of the key uh, stakeholders in the movement from the World Bank and the IMF to um, the philanthropies to the US Treasury to so many others who were there, um, all to advance this idea of double bottom line um, investments. And it is really, um, I believe, uh, been uh, a, an enormous contribution to understanding how we can make uh, the capital markets 
work for both financial and social benefit. That's uh, that's terrific. All of that uh, on the impact investing, I believe that was 2007, because I'm always saying 2007 Rockefeller Foundation, you were there, coined impact investing uh, when we talk about it, because it's such a big part of our asset management business. And as you know, it's it, the traction that impact investing and ESG has now is in a whole different category than it was uh, just a few years ago. Um, we have, Darren, some good questions that have come in from uh, from the audience through Microsoft Teams. So I'm going to uh, uh, interrupt the flow and just uh, ask you a couple of those. The first one comes from Eric Dayton, and Eric asked the following. This is, I know, a topic you, you, you touched on and, and this notion of leveraging 14 billion is a lot, but you're trying to take it and leverage it for much more. So Eric says, under your leadership, the Ford Foundation has been rightly celebrated for borrowing against your endowment to accelerate spending and amplify impact. Thank you for your leadership. However, looking at the philanthropic sector more broadly, the vast majority of the trillion dollars held in private foundations spends out at the minimum required 5% annually, and much of the approximately 142 billion held in uh, DAFs, which I guess are uh, direct, uh, I'm not Donor sure advice funds. Donor advice funds, thank you, is deployed at an even lower rate. In the context of historic social unrest uh, in response to racial inequality in a 10-year window of opportunity to avoid the existential threat of climate change, what would it look like for philanthropy to rise to the occasion, and what is your opinion of a proposed regulation that would push philanthropy to do more faster? Well, I think Eric's uh, question is spot on. Um, so uh, let's be clear, uh, uh, the uh, rate at which we are spending as a sector uh, is woefully inadequate for the moment. And I think it is possible for us, certainly the legacy foundations, to both um, do more and, and recognizing um, the window that we're in and the reason we issued bonds was, was because um, we made the decision and the uh, assessment that rather than taking from our endowment, uh, we would be more, it would be more prudent to actually leave the money in. And because of the historic rates and where the yield curve uh, was last uh, spring to issue bonds. And, we, and that was the right decision. I mean, as I said, we at the low, um, we've had a spectacular 18 months, like like most of the large endowments who have had access to to the the funds that have really outperformed, particularly in, in venture capital. And so, at the low, we were down to 12 billion. Um, and and of course, as I said, as of last week, we we are you know 16 and a half. Um, and and in the meantime. We we spent um, seven hundred million dollars uh, during this time, so it's been a, a time for us. I think it validated why we 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 should we it was it was the right thing to do, but we needed to do more in terms of spending out. I think um, Eric's point about DAFs is is absolutely uh, spot on. Um, we have in the donor advised uh, area um, significant um, resources um, that are not being deployed because of the uh, allowance uh, 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 Treasury allows uh, uh, donors to put their money in a DAF, receive the tax benefit, 
and not be required uh, to actually um, pay it out, to actually spend. Now, if you talk to folks at Fidelity and Schwab, they'll tell you that the record is good, but it's uneven. Um, and I think this, this point of really um, using public policy uh, is, is appropriate uh, to have conversations right now about uh, requiring more. And, and we have supported um, at Ford research to really look at not just um, DAFs, but the whole ecosystem of philanthropy to see the different ways in which we can have social impact from how we use our endowments uh, all the way to what the right payout is uh, to the question around the DAFs. Uh, I, I think uh, both of you are on exactly the right topic. It, you know, stretching this money at a time when society really needs it uh, and, and it could help catalyze change would be uh, seemingly very good public policy, uh, irrespective of, uh, of uh, administration or, or party. Um, Darren, I want to uh, uh, ask you the next question, though, because it comes from somebody uh, so, uh, that we both want me to, to put it out there. Uh, David Rockefeller actually sent you a question in, and David says, uh, Darren, what advice would you have for a young, newly wealthy, aspiring American philanthropist in terms of how to structure a new foundation and how to think about building a program? Well, I think for, uh, it's really interesting, and David, probably experiences this, a lot of young um, billionaires that, that I come into contact with um, are really not interested in establishing a foundation. It, and, and in fact, for some of them, they see it as antithetical. Um, uh, and, and, and they often, particularly the West Coast, uh, uh, billionaires sort of reject these sort of notions that were um, started in the East. And um, they, they like this idea that uh, they are going to uh, have a different approach. Now, my concern is, um, you know, John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie and Mellon, for the others, the fact that they had been successful, the fact that John D. Rockefeller was a genius and understood through science and technology and other means how to extract oil and refine it, did not lead him to think he had the answer for education in America or how to address issues of public health. One of the things that concerned me is that young, uh, wealthy, uh, especially entrepreneurs who have achieved that wealth quickly, have this notion that actually if philanthropy could just be more like business, if nonprofits could just be more like business, um, that solutions would be more forthcoming. If we would just adopt um, the, the kind of uh, technological innovation, if there is an app uh, or some uh, technology that can be developed for it, it's exactly where they want to go. And the streets of philanthropy land are littered with the carcasses of young philanthropists who thought that if only their idea could be implemented, the problems would be solved, or at least we'd make great progress. And, and that's because uh, unlike John D. Rockefeller and the others who trusted 
the experts and who had some sense of humility about approaching the social challenges they wanted to solve, um, that is not always present uh, with some of the the new wealth that uh, I encounter. And so my my uh, counsel to those folks, and, and I've been lucky, I mean, I, I do help and speak to uh, people like um, the Chan Zuckerbergs and Laureen Powell Jobs and many others who are doing really powerful work and structuring their philanthropies in different ways. I mean, what Laureen has done in creating an LLC where she has a foundation, but she also has an LLC and she has a, a, a very sophisticated way because she understands something that if you want social change, you're going to have to have not only a political arm, but you're going to, uh, sorry, you're not only, only going to have to have a philanthropic arm, but you're going to have a political arm. You're going to need to be investing in the public policy change directly through legislation, directly through support for candidates, uh, which we don't do uh, and which um, the legacy foundations uh, cannot do. Um, and so the new philanthropists, I think, are being far more pragmatic and practical and strategic about the full range of ways in which together they can use their wealth uh, to advance um, their, their vision for the world. Thank you, uh, Darren. That's uh, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that a lot of the, the the people who want to to take the resources and make an impact are are coming to you for counsel. Now, there's uh, th there are many topics, and again, many of them highlighted in your biography and the things that you're actively and personally involved today that uh, that you're uh, uh, influencing. Uh, but just to take a couple here in the in the time that we have. You know, our country is is grappling with with many divisive and critically important social issues. One area that has seen real progress over the last few decades is tolerance around gender and sexuality. And you, as we've discussed, have have in the past uh, commissioned research in this area and been part and, and seen the evolution. Uh, can you talk about what drove the progress here? I think we're drove the progress around LGBT rights and marriage equality was uh, was was media, to be totally candid. I mean, when the Ford Foundation uh, two decades ago was working on um, these issues, we didn't even call it uh, uh, LGBT rights. Uh, there was there was some innocuous uh, program uh, name, um, but the foundation was investing in the idea. Uh, I, I like to say we invest in moving ideas from the margin to the mainstream and and, and so there are ideas that are marginal that you can invest in and over time, especially through um, the use of, of media. And so we invested in script writing uh, to ensure that LGBT characters were in uh, films, um, um, in um, all sorts of uh, of, of quote unquote, normalizing uh, something that had been thought was not normal. Um, and and obviously there was success. I mean, and, and so part of the strategy that we had was to invest both in the kind of social, in the, in the media, and then to invest in the actual uh, 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 courts 
um, and 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 so we supported um, through the courts um, any number of of litigation uh, actions uh, to advance LGBT rights and marriage equality and. Um, and ultimately, I think the media is what really changed it. And to be totally, uh, just totally tactical, I mean, a, a show like Ellen, um, some, you know, two decades ago, um, was instrumental in changing how people saw uh, gay people in American culture and, 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 and normalizing this sort of girl next door and having her, after any number of seasons, come out um, to her family, to her, her her neighbors, and have them all embrace her was was a huge uh, intervention and breakthrough uh, in terms of popular culture and mainstreaming um, this idea that to be gay was not to be quote unquote abnormal um, or to be um, in, in some way uh, deficient. Um, and, 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 and I think that was, was intentional. So we can do that. We can't do that uh, in, in all arenas. It's much harder. And, and this, again, the research has demonstrated this. It's much harder on issues of race uh, than it is um, on issues of sexual orientation. Um, and, and just in terms of how uh, Americans uh, see uh, these social challenges. Actually, Darren, can we go to that? Uh, you know, the the um, the topic of race and and what it will create, what what it will take to create progress addressing racial inequities and and a lot of what the country is grappling with today. You uh, you you always describe yourself as hopeful. What's the plan here, or as you see it? What's it going to well, take? I'm absolutely hopeful on uh, our uh, capacity as a nation to uh, be a multiracial democracy. First of all, let's just think about that. Um, there has never been in the history of this planet a multiracial democracy succeed. Uh, and we have only recently began to actually talk about ourselves, think about ourselves through that lens. And that's not to say that uh, I'm, I'm into identity politics or I want um, us to um, see ourselves through, um, through uh, only through lenses of identities. Um, I think the most important identity I have is that of being an American, but I am black, I am gay and um, those identities have shaped who I am and have shaped how the world has perceived me. And, and I, I believe that if we are to make progress, we have to come to grips with uh, our history uh, and, and recognize uh, certain truths that are very painful and very difficult to embrace as a country. And we see the response. I mean, I think um, there remains, whether we are willing to accept it or not, a strand of white supremacy in our country that has always been there and certainly been there uh, since uh, the uh, 19, uh, 19th century. And that strand of white supremacy is very much alive and well. And if 
we don't, um, if we're not willing to, uh, to, to name that for what it is, because it is in part what is leading to the level of domestic terrorism we see. It is in part the reaction uh, to our, uh, the elections um, in, in Georgia is particularly, I think, uh, potent um, example of, of how white supremacy and democracy um, uh, collide. I mean, the reality is uh, democracy is a threat to white supremacy, not the other way around. Actually, it's it's our capacity to all be engaged, which is the highest, most noblest ideal of a democracy that gives me hope. I think what is hard for some people is that Democracy cannot look like what happened in Georgia. I mean, democracy cannot be a black man and a Jewish man representing a Southern state. I mean, th that can't be what democracy looks like for some people. And I think that is what uh, worries me, that there are uh, far too many people in this country who share implicitly or explicitly that uh, that bias, uh, that point of view. Uh, and, and I actually think that that's uh, the harm that I worry about in our future. Um, that's what gives me pause in the, on those days when I don't feel optimistic, when I worry about my country. It's because I feel that, that ideas like that are gaining traction, are actually uh, becoming normalized and are moving from what were marginal places in our country and, and in our collective psyche to front and center. That worries me. Well, um, I'm going to go back to a question. I, you know, we could have done this for hours, given the depth of uh, and the importance of the topics that uh, that we're dealing with. But Valerie Rockefeller sent a question in, and I want to make sure I ask it of you. Uh, she says, hello, Darren and Greg, and thank you. Both Ford and Rockefeller Capital Management have focused on diversity as well as sustainability in investments. Would you comment on your work with underrepresented fund managers? Well, Valerie knows, uh, although she wouldn't admit it, uh, that under her leadership as uh, chair of the board of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Rockefeller Brothers Fund uh, has far outperformed the Ford Foundation on this dimension. Uh, and um, the leadership of RBF in this space, I think, has been pretty unparalleled uh, among the legacy philanthropies. Uh, I do think the issue of diverse management um, is critical, and this is this gets back to when I mentioned how we invest our uh, our assets, uh, having a social uh, impact. And part of that reality is that the investment in the asset management industry um, has uh, not had as many um, um, people of color, women, um, owners, leaders, managers in the industry. And so as investors, it is one of the areas where we are uh, taking a more active role in engaging our managers 
uh, just as it has been on issues of sustainability uh, and climate change, again, where RBF has taken the lead. Um, we have to use not only our grant making, um, and it, so it's not just the 5%, it's the other 95 or the other 100%, however you choose to look at it, that we should also be um, uh, addressing and, and leveraging. I mean, you know, lest we find ourselves like um, some foundations, I mean, I use the metaphor of the foundation that is investing in, um, in public health in the Niger Delta and also investing in the biggest polluter in the Niger Delta. Um, and, and so you have to have a, a, a far more uh, muscular and robust engagement with your asset managers than we used to. I mean, this, th these are issues that 10 or 15 years ago, you didn't have um, big uh, endowments like Rockefeller, um, RBF or Ford engaged with our managers on these kinds of questions. And today um, it is it is a front and center. Uh, there isn't a conversation uh, about investing with any manager, uh, even the really difficult VC funds to get into. Um, it, you don't talk to them anymore without talking about this issue. And it's, and it's because clients want to know how are you doing how are we going to you how are you going to help us achieve our goals not just financial return but uh, our social returns as well and i mean greg I, i'm sure you as a large capital management firm must be confronted with this as well all, all the time and, and and valerie knows and and it's nice of her to point it out that we're very focused on it as well and and actually uh the and, and we've, we've launched a uh, long short hedge fund where the senior portfolio manager is a woman in an industry with very few women that are senior portfolio managers. So we're uh, very focused on it because as you said, Darren, this is where the clients are going and they are forcing the, the, the needle there. And, and uh, as the provider, you, you need to respond to that. Um, Darren, I want to, uh, and again, we, 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 uh, we booked an hour, we could have done a lot more, but there's a couple of questions I wanted to hear your response on that are back slightly more personal, but I did listen to the University of Texas speech in 2015, uh, and you use this metaphor of bridges, which I thought was uh, really powerful, both physical bridges and human bridges. Can you just talk a little bit about that uh, and uh, you know the impact it's had in your life? Because I, I found it to be something that really resonated. Well, you know, that, that commencement was really about my own story. And, you know, of course, I have a special love for Texas and the University of Texas. But my journey from the small town where I lived to Austin was just going going through a series of, of, um, of across a series of bridges um, to, to get to Austin. And, and so that really was the metaphor. But what I really was speaking to was how uh, we uh, are losing our capacity as a society to uh, find those bridges and that our leaders are failing us in helping to bridge, to serve as bridges. Um, and, and, and that is, uh, in, in my view, um, a, a great Harm to our democracy that we that our that we let our leaders that we elect people who uh, don't seek to help us bridge our differences and who find uh, political currency and reward 
in not building bridges. Uh, and and so that that was really the impetus for that that commencement. Uh, and I need to ask you um, because it was part of 60 Minutes, but it's a spectacular story. And I told you uh, I was watching with my wife and she said, good for her. But I would like to hear the story uh, in your words again for the group here. Uh, when you took your mother to the White House and she met uh, President Obama, uh, what transpired in that receiving line uh, when when your mother finally got up to meet uh, President Obama? Well, it was among the most mortifying experiences of my life. And with my mother, there have been many. Uh, but uh, it was it was the state dinner for Xi Jinping, and my mother and I attended, and I coached her very well uh, on many occasions before that when you are in the receiving line, you do not have a conversation with the president. You simply shake his hand and thank him and continue to. My mother was presented to the president. She took his hand and she initiated a conversation with him, a deep conversation with him um, that I didn't, I was going on to Xi Jinping and, and, and Mrs. Obama and not paying, a, and I looked to my left and she was still in a deep conversation and would not let go of his hand. Madeleine Albright, uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor were standing there. I looked mortified because I was mortified. And uh, Pete Rouse, the photographer, captured me reaching over and grabbing my mother and pulling her literally away from the president and she would not let go of this. And it's all photographed. It's all, it was her Christmas card. I mean, it is, <laughs> it was a humiliating experience. And Valerie Jarrett was standing by me and then literally, I mean, in the middle of the 60 minutes episode, Valerie was texting me saying, ha, 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 I remember that night. You know, it was just a memorable occasion when your mother does that. That's a great story. Uh, and President Obama's gracious. So uh, he's- Of course he's... he was gracious. What could he do? <laughs> Woman would let him go. That's fantastic. Uh, well, Darren, uh, it's been uh, fantastic having you here. Uh, and uh, uh, the topics are so meaningful and important. Uh, in every aspect of, of society today and what's relevant from a business standpoint for our clients and Rockefeller Capital Management uh, when you're directing a, a foundation of this size and having the impact you do through leveraging it with relationships, but also the different issues that you're driving and, and looking to catalyze change around. So uh, fantastic to have you here. Uh, I did promise you, um, as uh, uh, everybody who watched has watched all these uh, client interviews, I have several quotations uh, to leave everybody with. Uh, and I, I thought about them in the context of this spectacular journey uh, that is uh, that of Darren Walker, which is still a work in progress. So uh, keep uh, keep doing everything you're doing as I know you will. And thank you to uh, uh, our partner and my colleague, David Rockefeller Jr. for the introduction to Darren and for helping bring this uh, together. So I have three quotations for you. The first, Ayn Rand, uh, the fountainhead, which uh, I would guess you're probably a fan of. She said the following, quote, the question isn't who's going to let me, it's who's going to stop me. My second is Socrates, who said, quote, the way to gain a good reputation is to endeavor to be what you desire to appear. 
and that is you, Darren Walker. And then the last one is Mandela. And I have several of his I typically use, but this is a different one. Um, he said, quote, there is no passion to be found in playing small in settling for a life that is less than what you are capable of living. And Darren Walker has not played small. So Darren, thank you again for being here. Terrific to have you. Thank you to clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our colleagues, and all the friends of Rockefeller Capital Management for being here again. Uh, stay well, all the best, and we'll see you soon. Take care.